Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome, everybody, to Marin Coven this morning. Hey, Javier. Welcome to our online community. It is so great to be together on this fine Sunday. Gosh, I, I don't know if this is rock star in me, but that, that ending fill, Blake, I just want that every day before I leave, just to wham. All right. Well, hey, um, welcome again. I don't know about you. Do any of you guys like listening to podcasts and audiobooks, and it's a good way to pass the time and you feel like you're really smart because you're driving places, but then you learn all this great stuff? Thanks, Michael. Well, a couple of months ago, I came across this uh, podcast that um, is mesmerizing. It's like, I feel like I'm watching a train wreck. I can't stop listening to it. Um, and then at the same time, I am just like horrified, sweating through my shirt all at the same time. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you know, you know, and if you don't, I'm just going to give you a quick little backdrop. But this is a podcast about this church named Mars Hill and their lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. And he um, was just this firebrand. I mean, he is a firebrand. He's this brilliant, brilliant Bible teacher. And from the time he was like 24, everyone's like, you're going places, you're going places. And everybody just opened the doors for him. And his church just became gigantic in Seattle, you know, the least uh, church cities in the world. And he just went full you know, anti-Seattle culture and kind of leveraged authoritarian misogyny uh, for the kingdom, which he got so much success that it was like, I guess this is the thing that God's doing. And he just, his church has exploded, right? And there's a sermon that he gives where he says, basically, if you're not on board with us, then you need to get off the bus. That's how like most people talk. But Mark goes, hey, actually, you might find yourself under the bus. And um, like all human endeavors, enough of those people under the bus have kind of gotten together and are telling the story. And it is a heartbreaking, horrific story. And it's a heartbreaking, horrific story because there is this church and this pastor who has all the gifts in the world, who are proclaiming all the goodness of God, but did it in such a way that caused so much spiritual abuse and trauma for people. And now there's this whole grouping of people trying to reel from that. Like, what in the world does that mean? And it's produced so well. So I think anyone who likes stories is going to be listening to it. But man, as a male lead pastor, I'm like horrified. Like, oh my gosh, it is so scary. Well, um, what I think is fascinating about it too is this idea that all um, abuse, all trauma violates this like deepest, deepest part of us because we're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, God made us for intimacy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? The, the, the triune God is a picture of intimacy. Imagine Velcro with the hooks and the loops, right? Velcro comes together. It's designed for intimacy. But whenever there's abuse or trauma, it, it ends up deforming those hooks and loops. And you can't have the intimacy that God in, intended for us, right? It happens in every way, physically, emotionally. But gosh, it can also happen spiritually. There can be places where spiritually those hooks and, and, uh, hooks and loops get broken as well. And I think it's, it's even the deeper wound spiritually because we're not only made in the image of God, but as Christians, we're claiming to be followers of God. Whereas Christians, we're saying, hey, you want to know what it looks like to who this God is? Well, follow us. We are followers of this God. So this is what it looks like. And then we just end up having, um, you know, a bus full of people or, you know, we've driven over a whole bus loads of people on our own. I have, maybe you haven't. And so it is just a, it's, a, it's an incredible podcast. It's given me a ton of pause. And I thought about it because um, we are going to look at something that's really challenging this morning um, in the book of John. And I just think we love looking at other people's chaos. It's easy to listen to somebody else's church and, and put the magnifying on, glass on them. But as people who come to God's word as a church that longs to be all that God has for us, we have to have a little bit of a posture to say, okay, God, what in the world 
do you have to say for us as a church, for us individually? So we're going to be in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you know that we are in the series of the Gospel of John, Following Jesus. And this morning's message is called Restoring the Worship and Testimony of God. And even though the, the story of Mars Hill, like I haven't gotten to the restoring part, but I've been a Christian long enough to know that all the deepest, darkest, hardest things, the whole reason why we're Christians, the why we've gathered here, the reason why I've given up um, an opportunity to work in Silicon Valley, even though I probably never could have gotten a job there, but I dream that, to be a pastor is because I want the opportunity to proclaim the ministry and reconciling work of Jesus. And so even the really challenging, dark, darkest, deepest things that happen, that's part of the story in Jesus. Even restoring a church like Mars Hill, and we're going to see even restoring the work of God in the world is what Jesus has done. And we're going to see how he does that in John chapter 2. So we, for the next seven or eight months, are going to be going through the gospel of John. And if you see the beginning of John chapter 2, it's the Jesus turns water into wine. Like, that's where I should have preached this morning. In fact, this morning I was like, dang it, that's what I should have picked. But I didn't. I skipped all the way down to 13. So that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. John chapter 2 verse 13 says this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. All right, so this is the context we find ourselves, where Jesus finds himself, right? So Jesus, because he's a good Jewish man, all Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three different festivals, and Passover was one of the festivals. And so imagine this, Jerusalem is this beautiful city, and then for three times a year, pilgrims from all over the countryside God-fearers from even neighboring countries travel to Jerusalem to come and to honor God. And you can imagine city folk are city folk, right? They love being a part of the city, the, the metropolis, everything is so great. And then you have all these riffraff, you know, country folk coming into your city, coming into your place of worship. And, uh, and so there was this tension, right, between the, the people, in Israel, I mean, people in Jerusalem and all these country folk. Well, all these pilgrims are coming to the temple in order to offer sacrifices, and there's all these rules and regulations around temple worship. And I would imagine early on, the priests were like, hey, these people are coming from all these distant lands. Let's make life a little bit easier for themselves. The scriptures and the laws are really clear that you, only, you can't have um, coins that have other gods on them, right? That's a form of idol worship. So we can't accept money that has like Caesar's face on it or other people's faces and other images. We can only uh, take the temple shekel or the Galilean shekel. And so what we'll do is people will come with their money from all over their part of the world and we'll exchange it so that they can come and offer their, their financial gifts to the temple. And then we don't want people like traveling from all these different lands and dragging their goats and donkeys um, along with them or trying to take doves that aren't going to make the trip and die. Or if they get there, they're like, ooh, what are these riffraff Galilean goats? You know, we need real goats. And so there has to be true goats. And so what we'll do is we'll make sure all the goats that are acceptable for worship, we'll have those in the temple ready to go, right? All these good-hearted priests. I mean, I imagine, I mean, they get a bad rap, but I imagine that's probably how it began. Like, we're going to take all these travelers and we're going to help them come and worship God appropriately in line with all of our rules and regulations. So that's where Jesus finds himself. But what happened is over the years, it became this corrupted situation. So this is the temple, the temple mount. And you see the big building with the spikes. That is the temple. That is actually the temple. Inside the temple is where the Levites, the priests would do their, their spiritual work. And inside that work was the Holy of Holies, the place where the scriptures taught that the presence of God 
was actually present with his people. The dream from God for the very beginning was that he would be our God and we would be our peop- his people, but he's perfect and holy. We're sinful and broken. And so there'd be this spot that was pure and holy and that's where he would live. Well, right outside of that is the little courtyard and that's where all the good Jewish clean men would be. Sorry, ladies, but only Jewish men were allowed to be in that court and they would go and that they would worship. But there were plenty of women and plenty of uh, unclean Jewish men and plenty of Gentile God-fears who loved God and wanted to honor God, and there was a place for them. And that's this big courtyard. That's called the Gentile court. And that is where they would find themselves. And so all of these travelers, all the riffraff, basically like if you and I, were, that's where we would be, the riffraff, except for you, Javier, but every, the rest of us, we would be with the riffraff um, out in the Gentile court. And, um, and so what would happen is, you know, you're traveling from a distance. There's already a discrepancy. You're, you already know you're a second and third class citizen, but you still love God. That's the way the world, the world's always been stratified. And people just owned that that was their spot. And they would go and they would buy doves and um, cattle and donkeys. And they didn't buy donkeys, but, you know, they buy all those, they buy all those things and they would exchange money and then they would go and worship. But imagine what that Gentile court would be like. It'd be like if our lobby was just full of cattle. I mean, they're not potty trained, right? Do you know what I mean? Like imagine the smell and the pee and the poo and the hay and the garbage and the, the, this, the circus act that's happening there right in the lobby. And in here we're trying to worship and there's a circus act out happening out there. So Jesus shows up with his disciples and that's the scene. And that's the scene that's been going on for, you know, for decades and decades. And yet there's something that's just so offensive to Jesus. So verse five says this. So he made a whip out of cords. Now, I don't know about you, but when I imagined Jesus, he was a nice Swedish guy with a blue sash and, you know, conditioner in his hair. And he just was like, I love people, right? That's the hippie version, but that's not who Jesus was. But if you look who most of the stories through the gospels, right? He is kind, he is generous, he says and does hard things. Uh, He pushes back on the religious leaders for sure. But to take a whip, I mean, that is a violent action. And me, I'm, I know I present, I don't present this way, but I'm a pacifist, man. I'm a lover, not a fighter. You know, I have soft hands. There's no way. But to make a whip and to end up doing something violent, this is what Jesus does. He makes a whip out of cords and he drove from all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And I don't know, this, this is always happens like the youngest kid. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. I say that because like, why the doves, those guys got jacked in this whole thing. He's just ticked off at everybody. And the last guys were selling doves and those. So Jesus rebukes them. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is a really famous story. I think it's famous because it's so violent. It's so traumatic. And it's such a like, you know, punch to the man. And for those of us who want to like fight the man, we're like, yeah, Jesus did it. We can do it too. So there's so many reasons why we love this story as long as it's not pointed towards us. That's what I found. And so here we are, Jesus cleansing the temple. And so there's this system that's happened outside of, in the Gentile court. And however Jesus experienced it, it was such a violation to him and to his sensibilities, to his understanding of God and himself and to worship. Excuse me. <coughs> It was such a violation that it caused just this violent reaction. And when I think about what in the world would cause such a violent reaction, this is the way that they've been doing worship for, forever. 
Well, it's interesting because I, when I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, the passage that was actually in my mind was the passage from Luke, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke almost have, all have the same version of the story. John's version is different. Luke's, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, this story happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. And it is this violent um, confrontation to the priests, and, which I'll talk about in a second. And then this happens in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's hard to tell exactly um, if they're the same, if one had happened earlier, if they're two different accounts. Um, Bible scholars have been debating that forever. What we do know is that John very clearly put this in the beginning of the book for a very clear purpose. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. But I wanted to go take a look at the, this passage in Luke because I think this is part of the offense. So in Luke, it says this, My house will be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And I love the way that old Jewish men debate. This is how I imagine, because they knew the Torah backwards and forwards. And so instead of having to make like a 20-minute argument, they would simply drop a half a verse in there, and you would know the context of that whole verse, and you would know exactly what's going on. In this one statement, Jesus says two verses, two parts of scriptures aimed right at the, at the temple priests. And in your Bibles, if you have a little paper version, right, it says, it'll say, my house uh, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations and has like an A. And you look down and it says, oh, Isaiah 56, 7. But you have made it into a den of robbers. And it'll be Jeremiah 7, 11. And so what Jesus is saying is all of Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56 is, I just, I've read it several times this week, is such a beautiful passage of scripture. It's this recognition that the temple of God is for all people. And Isaiah, the prophet of God, is rebuking um, the priest and saying, listen, Foreigners are coming. Eunuchs were coming. Eunuchs, right? They were, because they were deformed, they weren't considered clean, so they couldn't worship in the temple courts. They had to worship out with the riffraff. And Isaiah 56 is saying, no, it doesn't matter if you're a foreigner. It doesn't matter if you're a riffraff, if you're a eunuch. You deserve to come to the temple and worship. For my house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all the people groups, not just for Jewish men, for all of the people groups. And then he says, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And then the really smart people go, oh, in Jeremiah 7, 11, that whole chapter is just Jeremiah launching a tirade on the priests for abusing their power. So in one sentence, you know, Jesus just comes after them and comes unglued. Now, what's interesting is for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is trying to make, or those, those um, authors are trying to make the story understand that the gospel, that Jesus, the ministry gospel, is for all the nations, for all the people, and we can't forget about the Gentiles. We're pointing towards the time when the Holy Spirit's going to come and be available to all people. But what John is saying and doing is a little bit different, right? So in John, it says this, to those who sold doves, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. And then his disciples, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So in Psalm 69, 9, it's this whole song, psalm, it's this, this, this poem from King David about basically because of his love for God, he's willing to be persecuted. He's willing to step out and stand up for the things of God, even though it's going to cost him, pointing ultimately to Jesus dying on the cross. And so John is, is telling the story a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but for a different reason, because John is trying to clarify, which we're going to see in a minute, what he cares about is that Jesus cares about the temple worship. Worship is what matters in the story of John. He wants to make sure that when people come to the temple, they're encountering the presence of God, that the temple is telling the story of God. And the fact that there are these second-class citizens, this, or third-class citizens, right, that they just said the Gentiles and the God-fearers, those guys can just be in the barn for all they care. They, they can be taken advantage of financially. It doesn't matter. Was such a violation to the character of God, was such a violation to what the testimony of God was supposed to be 
in the temple, it just caused Jesus to lose his mind. Zeal for your house will consume me. And so I just think what, what's so important for Jesus is that he wants to make sure that not just he wants to point the finger at the, at the ruling class, he actually wanted to disrupt the system and he had something to say. What he had to say was that this version of temple worship is not working. It's a violation. It is not okay. Now, even though it's a whip and you're turning over tables and it's really violent, as I studied this, what I realized is it's actually a really gentle rebuke. Now, not in our terms, anyone with a whip and tables, that's very violent. But it's a gentle rebuke because think of the ministry of Jesus. Um, in the temple court, right, you have the Holy of Holies, you have the Jewish men, and then you have all the riffraff and Gentiles, right, and God fears. And Jesus just simply messed up that one area where the Gentile court was be, would be. But we know because we're sitting here in church, the ministry of Jesus, it would have been like actually grabbing a God-fearing woman and dragging her into the temple courts where all the Jewish men were and be like, this still isn't even good enough, dragging her all the way into the Holy Holies, ripping the, the curtain in two and said, this is where you belong. This is my ministry and this is what's going on. And that really is the ministry of Jesus. But there's no way the Jewish people could have taken all that in at that time, right? They would have just blown their minds and that would have been the end of it. And in a very gentle way, this is why I say it's gentle, because Jesus simply just gives them and gives us exactly what we can handle. It's hard. It is challenging when we get rebuked from others and from God, but he gives us what we can handle because that was as far as those Jewish people could understand. There were scriptures that backed up that moment. If Jesus would have taken the Gentile woman all the way into the Holy of Holies, gosh, who knows how that would have all gone. And so it's a question for me. And the thing that I've been wrestling with all week is, gosh, what would that be like if Jesus came rolling in to our church? on a good Sunday with all of us beautiful people masked up, you know, what would be the rebuke that we would have? And thankfully I was like, oh, it is a gentle rebuke. And I came up with three uh, examples. One example that I think we actually are doing pretty well on, one we are definitely in process on, and then three, uh, the jury is out. And so here's the first one. Um, as you know, I mean, we live in Marin County. Marin County is a really affluent place. Um, our church has a lot of really generous people. And because of those generous people, we are able to do a lot of really great things. Our budget is fully funded. We have lots of great trips that are able. And uh, we, we started thinking a few years ago, that's great that we have this, this, this economic system. It's great that we have these generous people and we want to make everything available, available for people. So how do we begin to do that? And we're like, well, let's start doing scholarships. And we would do scholarships for everybody. But a few years ago, it was brought to our attention that, gosh, when we ask people to give scholarships, it's almost like basically making people self-identify as a second-class citizen. Like, I know you're out in Marine Covenant, but I know that we're doing this great thing and you can't afford it. So... You'll just need a scholarship, but we'll help you, but you just got to identify as a second-class citizen. And, and that's not exactly how it is, but that could be how it feels. And, and our leadership team was like, well, what would it be like if we just took finances off the table for certain trips? And we started with our children, and we started with our youth, and we've bragged about this a couple of times because I'm mesmerized that we actually got this far, that every single one of our kids and students gets to go to every single thing that our church does for free. Doesn't matter. No questions asked. We have mission trips and other trips that are happening that um, we have a version of a scholarship, even though I just said it was second classism, a version of that, right? But I think we're, we're crushing it. That was something that we were challenged on like five or six years ago, and we're making steps, and we're like, oh my goodness, God has been so good in that gentle rebuke that we now get to be the testimony of God's generosity. Um, a few years ago, right, we started thinking, gosh, it's so great that um, we're a great church, but we're pretty homogenous, and we want to make sure that our church is available for all people and all people groups. Um, but what a bunch of middle-class white guy leaders have to say and how to help pull that off? 
I mean, we have lots of smarts about it, but we don't know. And so we hired some different staff. Specifically, we hired Danny and said, Danny, we want you to come and sit with us and help us to become more multicultural in our understandings. And Danny's like, oh boy, you can't pay me enough. And, but we took her anyway because God is gracious to us and she's working and helping us in process, right? So next week is our first Friday. It's an opportunity for us um, to begin to see different perspectives, different people's engagement of how they understand the world, the different wrongs they've experienced, so that we can actually be a church that is truly multi-ethnic and multicultural, so that we can be the picture that God longs for us to be, that we will be in the picture of Revelation. We're in the process. And some of you are like, you are not even close. And I recognize we're not close, but we are at least in that process, right? And then the third thing, which the jury is still out because we're in the middle of this COVID crisis. And I've had so many different conversations with people and, I'm, and like I said, the jury's out. Like, who is in the temple courts? And my heart is just heavy and achy for the people who feel like we're not doing enough uh, for, the, for the most fearful and the most um, at risk. And then my heart is really heavy and achy for the people who feel really marginalized politically in our context. In different parts of the world, they may, they may be different. But in our context, the dehumanization language around people who approach all that differently. And I'm seeing these different groups and I don't know what side's going to win. We're on, the jury's out, but I know Jesus has something for us to say in all of that. Okay. I can't believe I spent so much time on all that because I think it's fascinating. It's interesting. We read scripture in a way that we want to be open to all the things of scripture. We're reading through John because we don't just pick, oh, the wedding at Cana. That's so great. We also want to say, God, what are the hard things that you have to say both to me and to the church? And so I partly picked this passage of scripture to model a little bit for you and for us that we, we just sit open-handed and open-hearted towards all the hard things. But here's what's incredible. And I know I took more than half of my time on this, but this passage actually has nothing to do with the rebuke of the Jewish leaders. Even though it's super violent and even though it's super crazy, that is not the true passage, the true meaning of what John is trying to communicate. What, Jesus, what John is trying to communicate in this encounter is that Jesus is the new temple. That this version of temple worship that's all corrupted by all of you people, that is actually not the picture. That's like worshiping a tree as opposed to the person who made the tree. It's like someone pointing a finger down the road going, look at that. And you're like, what's wrong with your finger? No, the temple was simply supposed to point to the character of God, point to the, um, the character and the values of God. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, this temple is outdated. I am now the true temple. Okay, and so it goes on to say this. So the, this is in verse 18. So the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. For after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus has this crazy interaction and the, when he's confronted, he says, why are you doing this? What authority do you have to do this? And he's basically saying, listen, I have the authority because I am God's son. I am the new temple. And John puts this story at the very beginning because he's trying to make sure as we as readers as John, very from the very beginning, know that Jesus is the word of God, the word incarnate, the word who has come to dwell among us. In John 1.18, right, one of the translations says that he came and he tabernacled among us. He came to live among us. And the tabernacle is found at the end of Exodus. They made this tent where the presence of God was going to come and live with his people. That was the tabernacle. And Jesus says, listen, I am the tabernacle. Like what happened then in the tabernacle, what happened in the temple is now actually happening among you. I am now God incarnate living among you. I am now the person who is going to be the centerpiece 
of your life and the centerpiece of worship. I'm going to be the centerpiece of all the, of all the priestly activities because there really is and was true priestly work to do. We are sinful people. We're rebellious people. We drive over people on our bus all the time. And there has to be an atonement for those sins. And back in Jesus' day, those were done through animal sacrifice. Jesus ultimately dies on the cross to be the ultimate sacrifice, right? That's the atoning work. His blood covers all of our sins. That's the priestly work that Jesus did that happened in the temple. Now Jesus says, I am the temple, right? And then, um, so it's the centerpiece of worship. It's the place where the priests are. And then it is actually the true picture of the character and values of God. Jesus says, if you want to know who the Father is, you look at me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus saying, I am the temple. This whole story, it's a very violent interaction. In fact, I almost missed it in my own study because it's so compelling to think, geez, what do you have to do in me? What's the rebuke? What is happening? But we, we would miss it to realize that the rebuke is simply because we're marring the image of God. We're marring the testimony of God. That's what happened uh, at the temple. But the true teaching is that Jesus is the true temple. Now, here's where it gets wild. Now, I don't think John meant to say this, but because we are Christians and because we have the whole testimony of Scripture, we see that what Paul did is he actually made Jesus not just the temple, but now we are the temple. I mean, that's even more mind-boggling. Not this sacred building in Jerusalem, not this Messiah who was on earth for 33 years, but now you and I together as the body of Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Right? So there's this picture of this building that's happening. And everyone's thinking that the building is the temple. And imagine that whole building. Well, Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fit together and grows into this holy temple of the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is the most mesmerizing good news is that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We, when we gather, we are now the people who give testimony that this invisible God is actually alive and cares about humanity. And where does he meet? He meets when we are his gathered people. This priestly work of, of reconciliation and atonement, that is our job. Peter says that we are the kingdoms of priests. And we, we, I mean, if we aren't the ones who are peacemaking, if we aren't the ones who are helping bring reconciliation, who is going to? We are in a full blood feud moment of world history, and it's Christians who we've bought into it. But as the body of Christ, as people who are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, is our priestly duty to be offering sacrifice, to be trying to find reconciliation, to bring the atoning work of Christ into all the places that God has planted us. And lastly, that we are to be the people who give testimony to the character and values of God. When we gather as the body of Christ, we are actually giving testimony to the character and values of God. You thought you were just coming to church, you were going to send your kids downstairs and have some gumballs and just take a breather for a moment. But no, we are giving testimony to the values and character of God. When somebody who doesn't know anything about God walks in this room, we are a giant billboard proclaiming this is who God is. And the hard part is, what if we're missing it? And the temple was miss missing it. And they turned over the temples. Mars Hill, they missed it. There's things that we have missed it. There are things that we may miss it in the future. 
But just because we have missed it, because we may miss it, because churches have crashed and burned in the future, doesn't mean we abandon our call to be the people of God, to be the place where the Holy Spirit is alive and active that gives testimony to the movement of God. But what it does is it should compel us to make sure our personal lives are giving testimony to the values and character of God, to make sure our corporate lives are giving testimony to the values and character of God. And when we miss it, man, we need people in our lives to help us fix that and change that. Not because God's mad at you, not because you're a failure, but because we need the body of Christ to be healthy, to give true testimony to who God is. And as our world moves farther and farther and farther away from Christ, even more so we need the church to truly be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask us to just spend a few minutes um, in silent confession because there is this arc that happens. It is a redemptive arc because there are parts, there are sometimes when Jesus asks, comes in and does turn over the temples, there's things that are happening in our lives individually, happening even corporately, that God is like, oh, what in the world are you doing? But our our dream is that we would be people that would reflect God's character and his holiness and the mercy of God, that we are in a reflection of that. And without some correction here and there, we miss it totally. But we don't get corrected as people with no hope. We don't get corrected with just like having to deal with like some angry dad. We get corrected already forgiven. Our identity is already sure in who Christ is. And Jesus already paid for all of our sin. It's about being reformed. It's about being restored. It's about healing and transformation. And so when we come to God and we ask for for forgiveness and we confess our sins, it's an act of hope. It's an act of stepping into the most fullest and truest version of ourselves. It's not a cowering in fear. Okay, so we're going to ask God to forgive us individually for things, corporately for things. And our hope and our testimony is that by doing that more and more, our humble posture towards God and with one another, right, that our church would actually be a mirror to the character and values of God. People are like, I don't really understand God, but whatever's happening in Marin Covenant among those people, gosh, that seems to be what God's all about, right? You give testimony to God. That was the temple. Jesus is the true temple and we now are the temple. So let me pray for us, a little time of silent confession, and then I'm actually going to be quiet to let us be quiet and sit in that for a minute. And then we're going to continue in worship, and we're actually going to allow worship and the, 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 the lyrics and beautiful poetry and music of worship to be part of our prayer experience as we continue that posture towards God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I have to confess that I, I'm sometimes just distracted and put off by the violent nature of that story. I know for myself I'm put off when people attack me or point their finger at me and I just immediately stop listening. I just pray in a miraculous way through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you'd help us to work through my poor communication and our own defensiveness so that we can just sit and hear from you, Holy Spirit. That we'd be open to the ways that we are missing it in our testimony of who you are and what you're all about. I pray we'd be open for you to reveal the tables in our individual lives that need to be turned over, for the agreements that we've made that we thought were good at one point, but maybe have gone too far or maybe have just always been garbage. And I have, it's a dangerous prayer, but I also pray corporately, God, that you continue to help us as pastors and leaders and congregants 
be open to what tables need to be turned over here at Marin Covenant as well. And we step into that, that churning water with full of hope because we know the whole story of you, Jesus, the whole ministry of you, of the forgiveness of sins, of the restoration that you bring, of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and your dream to make us individually and corporately a temple that gives you all the honor and all the glory as we mirror your character and values to a world that is desperate in desperate need of them. Hear our prayers, Lord.